0: By show of hands, uh, how many of you guys have seen the uh, movie School of Rock? Okay, awesome. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's a movie starring Jack Black. came out in 2003. It's the story of this rock and roller, Dewey Finn, who is, uh, you know, trying to make it big time in his band, but as ACDC tells us, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. And that is his journey. And um, his life goal is to stick it to the man. And the man is anyone in authority, and, uh, and so he, that is his life goal. He's part of this rock band, and uh, there's this big competition coming up called the Battle of the Bands. And it's a cash prize of $20,000, and he you know is practicing for it, and about a month before the Battle of the Bands, he gets kicked out of his own band. And so he now is unemployed, Uh, Has no means to perform in this competition, and his roommate comes to him, who he's staying there. He's supposed to be paying rent, but he's not. He's basically like, "Dewey, man, if you can't pay your rent, I'm gonna have to kick you out." And to show like how uh, justified Dewey feels in his current life state, he says, "Man, I'm out on the front lines of society, liberating people with rock and roll," and that's his justification for not having a job. And so, he, you know, the next day is sitting around in the house and. Uh, the phone rings. He's thinking about how to, like, you know, get a job so he can make money to pay his rent, and the phone rings. It's for his roommate, Ned. They're like, you know, Ned is a substitute teacher, and it's a potential job, so he's talking with him, like, oh, just out of curiosity, how much how much does this pay, and he realizes, oh my gosh, I could make my money, so he fumbles the phone. <laughs> says, hello, this is Ned Schneebly, and he answers it as if he was his roommate. He takes the substituted assignment, and he starts teaching as his roommate. So uh, he's a couple days into teaching, and he's not a teacher, and uh, his kids are sitting there, and they're like basically demanding. I don't know what kind of classroom this is, but the kids are like, we want you to teach us. And so he's like, you want a lesson? Just quit. Because in this life, and he goes off on this huge rant against the man, how the man's trying to keep us down, and the way to stick it to the man is by joining a rock band. That's, that's his plea. And it's this kind, of, uh, this kind of thinking that causes parents to hate rock and roll music. I mean, like, rock and roll like, built its platform off of being the very thing that parents hate. Rock and roll against authority. And so this morning, we're going to look in the Bible, what the Bible has to say to authority. How can we thrive under authority? Should we stick it to the man or not? So, we shouldn't. That's that's not in question. Uh, Our text this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians. Before we get there, my name is Tristan. I serve with our kids and youth here. It's why I get to make pop culture references from before they were born. Um, which makes me feel old, even though I'm not. Um, but look with me this morning in uh, verses seven and eight of uh, of Ephesians. It says, "Render service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free." So, how are we to um, relate with authority as those who are under Christ's authority? Uh, we are to submit. Uh, submit to authority. It's a direct application of verse tw- 521. And so, this whole passage, what Justin covered last week and what I'm covering this morning, is basically Paul is getting to this point in the book where he says, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And what does that look like? It looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, for us this morning, we recognize that submitting to one another is our way of life. It's commanded by the author of life, and it's to point us or point others to the abundant life. If what Paul says here is true of slaves and masters, how much more so is it true of other types of authority, whether to our parents uh, or to society? And we'll get to that, but let's look first at children. uh, In verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, So, you may be here this morning, and uh, the only kind of thing that you know or think you know about the Bible is that it's just a whole big book of commands. Um, Well, I want to make the case this morning that God doesn't command things just willy nilly. Um, God, uh, our Creator, created us with a purpose, and so, uh, for instance, last last month, Abby and I moved into a new house. We got a, we now have a yard, so we had to get a mower. So we Bought a mower. It was someone bought it for us. It was really nice, uh, but it came with like four operating manuals. So I haven't read them all because there are four of them, and like half of them are in a different language. But like, I trust them to help me operate this mower because the creators of the mower wrote the manual, and. And so when we look at commands in Scripture, um, like, I could read a command in this operating manual, like, start your engine, and be like, who are they to tell me to start my engine? It's like, well, that's just how it works. And, like, as humans created by a creator God, he created us for a purpose in order to operate in a certain way. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at how God Commands us for our well-being. In fact, uh, Paul in this text he quotes the Ten Commandments, which is maybe the most famous of all of God's command uh, lists in the Bible. And the the giving of the Ten Commandments that's recorded in Deuteronomy five. The chapter before it, twice, uh, God commands that His people obey Him so that it may go well with them. He says, "Obey Me," and and what we see even like from the beginning pages of Scripture is that. God has a paternal care for his kids, for his creation. He wants things to go well for us. That is, that is why he tells us to obey him. And so in Deuteronomy 4, two times he says, Obey me so that, it will make, so that it may go well with you. And then in the next chapter when he's giving the Ten Commandments, he says, Children, obey your parents um, for this is right. And, and we see this correlation between um, us obeying our earthly parents as imaging Us obeying our heavenly parents. Uh, So it it is all for our good. Submitting to others is our way of life, commanded by the author of life to point others to the abundant life. So back in Ephesians, uh, though the recipients of this letter were not the direct recipients of the promise given um, in this verse, it's a general principle that holds through because it's baked into the created order, like God created us to flourish when we obey our parents. Um, because our parents are images of the kind of care that God has for us. God uses his authority to serve us, to, like, breathe life into us, to, to care for us. And this principle of, you know, obey your parents so that it may go well with you isn't like a magic wand we get to like wave in God's face and, you know, glean immediate prosperity. But it's more like a principle. I mean, we, we all know we can think of cases where someone was obedient and it, um, they still suffered trial. And we can think of times when people were disobedient and we maybe wished that they had suffered more trials. It, it, it's a, but it's a general principle that um, when we obey um, our parents, it goes well with us. And I want to refer back to verses seven and eight where it says whatever we do, uh, whatever good you do, this will be given back to you. And so what we're going to see is maybe we won't receive good in this earthly life as a result of obedience, but we know that the grave doesn't have the last word for us. So in this passage, um, Paul is writing um, from prison to the Ephesians church the church in Ephesus, and he gives this letter to his buddy Tychicus. He says, go to the Ephesian church and explain this letter to them. So he does, and he carries his parcel, and he goes to the church, and I'm guessing he probably goes to a lot of little house churches throughout the church of Ephesus, and he's explaining it to them, and kind of like what I'm doing here this morning, and uh, I can imagine, I mean, he's six chapters in, and I mean, we've got like, you know, 30-minute sermons, and we're starting to snore. I see you guys in the back, Um, and but like, he's like, preaching through the whole the book and like explaining it and so I can imagine when we get to this part when he's first starting to address children that the kids would be you know sitting there like playing with bugs or like you know maybe falling asleep or like doodling in the sand and maybe he like gets their attention and he's like kids listen like you this is for you children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right and I can just imagine them sitting there thinking like what after everything else you just said So, I mean, all throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is talking about how um, we are under God's new authority. We're his new people. In chapter 1, verse 5, he calls us God's children. Chapters 5, verse 1, he also calls us God's children. So, I can imagine them sitting there thinking, like, okay, so God's my my dad now, but, like, I still have to obey, like, my earthly dad. And so, he's, he's providing clarity. Like, okay, how, as God's children now, do I submit to my earthly parents? And, uh, he, the, the, the reason that I believe uh, God has us still obey our parents is because their earthly care for us is a picture of uh, our heavenly care. Just as earthly marriage is the shadow of God's heavenly marriage between Christ and the church, our parents serve as the shadow of God's heavenly love and provision for his people. Remember in Ruth, um, when we went through that series, how um, Boaz is like, you know, he shows up to his field one day and he hasn't met Ruth yet, but he, he shows up and he's like, you know, sidebarring it with like his manager guy and talking like, how's it going? You know, I see, you know, things are going well, uh, crops this year, rain, farmer stuff. And, but then he sees uh, this woman and he's like, who is she? He doesn't say, who is she? He says, whose is she? His first question was about who's taking care of this woman? And, and what we see in Boaz is this, this image of a guy who uses his authority to care for those who are working underneath of him. And we see Boaz as this very paternal figure. He even refers to her throughout the letter as my daughter, because he sees my, I have been given much, I've been given fields, and I should be using them, using what authority God has given me to serve those who come. And so when he sees Ruth, he says, whose is she? I think a better example, or not necessarily a better example, but the best example of um, someone submitting to authority is the the life of Jesus. Um, I mean, as we believe here, Jesus was God, is God, and uh, you could imagine him showing up to Earth and walking around like he owns the place because he does. But but he doesn't. That's not his posture toward authority toward those who. I mean, you know, I can imagine Jesus' parents saying, "Go to bed, Jesus," and he's like, "No." But like but that 's not his posture at all, and um, we don 't have exa- exact examples of him like you know submitting to a curfew or anything like that, but I think that um, when we think of Jesus obeying authority, I think a lot of times we can get into this mindset like, well well, Jesus had to do that because he, that was all part of god 's divine plan like if jesus wasn 't obedient, then like the whole like sweater would have unraveled but But I think that we'd be wrong to think that because Jesus wasn 't only fully man, he was the most fully the most full expression of what humanity looks like. And so when we see Jesus obeying, it's not because like ah, my hands are tied to God's divine ordinance to my life. It's, this is what humanity should look like. It should look like submitting ourselves to others. And so I can imagine, you know, Jesus trying to apply these verses, obey my parents and it will go well with me. It's like, yeah, obedience didn't go well for Jesus on earth, um, but that is what our hope is as Christians, our hope isn't in this earth. When we obey our parents, it might not go well for us, but we know that whatever good we do, this we will get back from the Lord. The author of Hebrews in verse 12, he talks about how Jesus, um, he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And so there is a joy on the other side of obedience that we can claim as Christians. Uh, obedience is worth it every time, even if it doesn't produce earthly comfort for us. Um, just to prove my point about Jesus submitting to authorities, at one point uh, there, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is strolling into Jerusalem, and he knows that in Jerusalem awaits his death and, you know, the, in some senses, the inauguration of his kingdom, and his people are getting stoked about it, and they're, like, walking, and they're, like, debating about, oh, man, when Jesus is in power, like, what position are you going to have? I want to sit at his right hand, and I want to sit at his left, and just, they're, they're human. And... And Jesus kind of overhears them bickering about who's going to be at his right and all these things. And, and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And they're great ones, they exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be slave of all. And whoever, uh, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. What has all this got to do with obeying our parents uh, as kids? Paul here is describing what mutual, what the mutual submission we're called to in 521 is, that children submit to their parents by obeying them, and parents submit their will to God by disciplining them in the instruction of the Lord. But as children, we might be sitting here this morning thinking like, well, you don't know my parents. I mean, they just got like rules on rules on rules and, you know, I, I, all these things. And to that, I think Paul would say, I mean, these, these commands aren't placed at the beginning of the book. It's not like Tychicus rolls up and he's like, all right, guys, got a letter from Paul. Uh, greetings, Ephesians. You yeah, know, I'm here. Uh, so this is Paul writing, um, verse 1, chapter 1, children, obey your parents. It's, it's, Paul lays a foundation of our obedience all the way. This is, in, this is at the end of the book. And so let's just kind of walk through why we have good reason to obey our parents, according to Paul. In chapter 1, we are God's spiritual children. Like God has adopted us before the creation of the world. God chose us in him to, to adopt us as sons. And chapter two is saying that though you are dead in your sins, God made you alive. And more than that, we're not just, you know, barely alive corpses that God raised from the dead, we are made into God's masterpiece. We're beautiful to be a display on the world for good works to show what God is like. In chapter three, Paul prays with all of the spiritual energy that he can muster, that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and length and width, I can't get those ordered right, of God's love. Like, it is so vast that it requires all the spiritual energy that Paul can muster. And then what should that do in us? Well, in chapter four... We, we see what this is all about. And we see that um, you know, as we look to our right and to our left and we see our, these new siblings that we have in Christ, that we have a mutual purpose. Uh, Paul gives the example of like we are knit like a body together and how you know, just like the ar- one arm doesn't rebel against another arm, there's no infighting between arms. We have the same goal, having the same mind among us. That It's all, God is doing all of this to us for something to put on display God's love to the world. And so when we come to chapter 5 verse 21 where it says this is what the spirit filled life looks like, it looks like submitting to one another. And then we see this obe- this command to obey our parents. It's like, well, why would I stick it to the man now? I mean, I've already given over my allegiance to Christ. I, I my you know, so your parents might it's a Sunday afternoon and you want to go see the a movie or you want to go out with friends, get ice cream and things like that and your parents are like you need to stay in mother yard. You can say that's cool. I, I don't need ice cream. My cup is full. I have so much joy as a result of the, of the as a result of the Spirit's work in my life. I don't need ice cream. I don't need time with my friends. Yeah, mom and dad, sure, no big deal. That's the posture coming from a heart that is so satisfied in Christ that what comes out of it, joyful obedience. Yeah, it's no worries. I think a bigger thing is at play here, um, more than more than an overflowing of our heart being joyful obedience, I think the opposite is scarier. A child who can't obey the command to do some small chores won't be able to obey Jesus' call on our life to pick up our cross and follow him. If you're making a stink over the smallest requests from your parents, I find it hard to believe that you're going to be able to pick up your cross and follow Jesus no matter no matter the cost. Next, Paul turns his attention to the parents. Um, They didn't get out of this either. Um, Says, "Fathers, don't promote. Excuse me. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord." That phrase that Paul uses right there, uh, "bring them up," is the same one that Paul uses a couple verses earlier in 5:28 when he's talking about no man ever hated his body, but he cares for and nourishes it. That like caring for and nourishing is what's translated here as bringing them up. And so another way to translate this first would be, fathers, don't provoke your children, but nourish them with the instruction and discipline of the Lord. What are we supposed to feed our kids with? Nothing short of God's spiritual nourishment of instruction and discipline. And so I'm reminded of like how uh, Jesus said, my, my flesh is true food and my blood, true drink. He who drinks from the water I give him will never thirst again. Or elsewhere where it says, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Like as parents, like you need to feed your kids, but you also need to be feeding your kids the truths of scripture so that when they leave your nest, to use a a bird example, um, like they're going somewhere. They have purpose. I don't know why I said that. So, I mean, and I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent, uh, albeit only of a 19-month-old, but I'm, he, he sticks it to the man in his own ways. And um, our, our, our general response so often when our kids don't submit to our authority or to God's authority is to respond in one of two ways. The first one um, is kind of the best friend approach. We've got buddy-buddy with our kid. The second one is kind of the iron gauntlet approach. We're going to take each of those in turn. Um, Warren Wiersbe, who is writing on this passage, said, the modern version of Ephesians 6.1 would probably read, parents, obey your children, for this will keep them happy and bring peace to the home. (laughs) Yeah. But, But what this misses, guys, is that God commands obedience for our kids, for this is right. As the earthly images of what our Heavenly Father is like, what we're teaching our kids when we don't expect obedience from them is that their heavenly father doesn't care very much about obedience either. When we become best friends with our kids at the expense of obedience, we're actually sacrificing our authority that God has given us to show our kids what God is like. That's the whole goal of parenting. The other approach, the iron gauntlet approach, we, be said, we must be discipline. excuse me, we must discipline in love and not in anger. If we ourselves are not disciplined in this, we surely cannot discipline others. Flying off the handle never made either a better child or a better parent. I mean, sometimes when Wesley throws his food across the room, I I want to match his will with mine and, you know, fight fire with fire and maybe even fly off the handle a little bit. In our moments of clarity, we know that this isn't good parenting because what that teaches our kids about who God is like is that God is kind of erratic, If you disobey him in just the right way, he'll fly off the handle. He might just crush you. But that isn't showing our kids what God is like. Our God is long-suffering, and thank God that he is. So what should discipline look like? Besides those two things, um, well, it's not hidden in these verses. Um, we can spend all day trying to look for some science of parenting. Um, the, the Bible isn't super clear on this, but I think that in this case, we would do well again to remind ourselves where this falls in this book. Look back just last chapter. Paul instructs us to like, try your best to discern what the will of the Lord is. Like Be filled with the Spirit. And so when we come to parenting and you're like, I'm at my wit's end. I've tried the best friend approach. I've tried the aren't. Iron Gauntlet approach, I'm losing my kids. Perhaps it's best that we submit those to the Lord. I also want to make note that this instruction is given in the context to a church. And so Paul isn't doing one-on-one parenting counseling sessions, although some parents need to get those um, when their kids are unruly. He's addressing the church. And so, like, what is the church's responsibility? It's like we we can ask our brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're struggling as a parent, that's okay. God has given us a body. Like, it's not about perfection, but we're going through this as a church together. Humble yourself before the Lord. Seek what is, trying, what is pleasing to him. Be full of his spirit and go to your brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe in your house church. Maybe if you're not in a house church, you need to get in one so you can talk to your brothers and sisters about how to do this parenting thing because it's hard. The role of an earthly parent is to be an image of the Heavenly Father and in order to represent God accurately, we must know him intimately. And be filled with the spirit to the brim, the last observation on this verse is that uh, Paul actually doesn't address parents here with this command. He just addresses fathers. He says, Fathers don't provoke your children, and while he doesn't say like and this is why I'm only addressing fathers, um, I don't know why, but I don't think that it was by mistake. I don't think he was like, as soon as it, I see Tychicus in the distance, like, should I run after him no Uh, next time. I think it's very purposeful that he addresses fathers here, and I have a couple of thoughts about that. I I can speak from experience how easy it is for me to expect my wife to parent our kid. Um, Paul doesn't write here, um, hey, fathers, the end of a really hard week, you know, you come home, you've been slaving away out there. I'm just really proud of you. So you can kind of, I know your wife is still at home, like taking care of the kids, but you can just kick your feet up and it's no big deal. It's like, that's not what Paul has in mind for fathers here. And he also doesn't say that because you draw a really big paycheck and you kind of pay for all the stuff, like it's fine. Like if your, if your wife carries more of this, Paul says, fathers don't provoke your children, but bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Calling is on us, um, we get to use our authority to, um, to show our kids what God is like, and he's not absent. Uh, one commentator said, bigger homes, nicer cars, and longer vacations purchased at the price of absent parents cost far too much. The responsibility is on us to raise our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and we can't neglect that uh, at the expense of anything. Um, but you may be sitting here, and your uh, experience of fatherhood, your your own father, um, it didn't remind you a lot of what you think God should be like. And so, when you hear, um, you know, in chapter one five or five one, when we are children of God, that's not the most flattering picture of God. Maybe your your father um, was or, or is abusive, and you and if you're here this morning, um, I would just commit to you that the same God that upholds parental authority. It's the same one who invented civil authority, and um, there may be steps that you need to take to, um, to, to pr- protect yourself using the, the means that God has set up. So if you need to talk to anyone about that, um, you know, I'm happy to make myself available. Any of the elders, if you're in a house church, I know it can be so challenging to speak up about this, um, but God cares so much about you. and He does not want you to be in that situation. Um, but perhaps you're sitting here and maybe your father wasn't abusive, but he just was kind of a lousy example of what the Heavenly Father looks like. And when you think of God, you don't necessarily love the dad analogy because it just brings up, just you've got a lot of baggage with that. Um, in this case, I, I heard it once said that um, the exception proves the rule. And what I mean by that is that um, if you know in your heart that your dad should have been better, God put that there. Like, the reason that we aren't delivered by storks as babies and that we have parents is because God really, he stands behind the parental model. He was the inventor of it, and he believes in parental authority. But they're just a shadow of the kind of authority that God wants to reveal to us. And so just as in marriage, we don't need marriage to understand Christ in the church. Um, it can be helpful, but we don't need really awesome examples of heavenly father here on earth we actually have one in heaven and and the bible says at the at the end of the bible what that looks like is that god wants to bring us all on like he wants to wipe away every single tear i can just imagine him like letting you crawl up on his lap he wants to hold you like you are so loved you might not feel that god is a very loving um, father but he cares for you so much it's replete all over scripture that god as the heavenly father shouldn't be diminished because your dad was a lousy example of him Um, You you should turn to your Heavenly Father for that. After addressing children and parents, Paul then turns to servants and masters. Uh, Looking at verse 5 through 8, he says, uh, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincerity, uh, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. You might have been like, you know, with me this up to this point, like parents, uh, you know, children obey your parents, like that, yeah, that makes sense, but then you read this command and you hear him addressing slaves and masters and you're pumping the brakes a little bit. Um, uh, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, could have said, um, you know, hey, you're free in Christ, uh, be also free from your earthly masters. He doesn't, and I don't know why Why he doesn't, um, why. there's not a verse in the Bible that abolishes slavery. Uh, I, I can't explain that away, but I want to point out how what Paul says here um, undoes slavery from the inside. Um, the The power of just as God doesn't, um, <laughs> just as God doesn't remove death, He just removes its sting. Sometimes God doesn't remove systems of oppression, but He undoes them from the un, from the inside, even as they remain intact. At this point, I think it'd be appropriate to recite Galatians 3, where Paul beautifully exclaims how in Christ there's neither slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And what we're talking about in Ephesians up to this point is like a joined together, like limbs to a body. I can imagine Tychicus standing here, and there may have been slaves and masters in the room, and he's addressing them, and it's uncomfortable. Like masters, Like, their master and yours is in heaven. Like up to this point, and I can imagine them, like, nodding along, yeah, like, unity in the body, Mm, good, and not, like, really thinking, like, oh, and then we get to this part where he addresses master specifically, and he says, like, they're your brother in Christ. I died to save them, and um, it sounds a whole lot like the healthy unity that we're called to as members of one body, um, I think another word is needed here uh, as to what slavery meant and looked like. I know that um, in America, our context uh, of slavery uh, hugely shapes how we would read these verses. Um, So, to share a little bit what that would look like, commentators believe that at the time that Paul was writing this to the church in Ephesus, there would have been 60 million slaves in Rome. Um, Slavery was baked into the fabric of the economic system. You could sell yourself into slavery. you could uh, purchase your own slavery or your own freedom from slavery. There was advancement up and down the economic ladder, even as a slave. Professions that we would, you know, say at the top of the ladder here could have operated in their same profession as a slave before. So it it wasn't uh, race-based. It was um, and, and it wasn't lifelong. Um, that would have been the uh, exception, not the norm. Uh, even the way that God uh, regulates slavery in the Old Testament is uh, every seven years, slaves are set free. Like, the idea of lifelong slavery is a perversion of justice and uh, and, and wasn't what we see here in this context. So this is, um, it, it's not as bad as what we see in uh, American slavery, and it's a whole lot worse than what we see <laughs> Um, in the employer-employee context. So I, I don't want to diminish slavery, but I do think that there are a lot of parallels because this was the the fabric of the um, economic society of how this system worked together, that a modern day parallel, the best that we have for us to be able to apply these verses would be the employee and employer passage. Uh, but one more note on that. Uh, it, in case you could think that Paul is... Uh, for slavery. Um, I would encourage you to read his letter to Philemon. It's a letter that he wrote to a slave master named Philemon, um, begging him, urging him to free his slave Onesimus, who's a dear friend of Paul. And so, I think that Paul would be on the side of this, even though, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he didn't abolish slavery. Um, In this text, uh, he's not for it, either. Um, If Paul could write these words to slaves and masters, how much more should these apply to us as um, employees and employers, um, I, I think that there's a, a similar parallel uh, for us here, uh, as, as it relates to how we relate to authority, um, to think about um, civil authority. So, um, when he says, um, when he says that we should serve uh, our masters from a sincerity of heart, with a sincere heart, serving God and not men, uh, I think of how like we relate to like the law enforcement here. So, how many of you guys, by raise of hands, like stop at every stop sign, like no matter what? couple of you. You guys are very uh, great citizens. How many of you guys stop at every stop sign if there's a cop behind you? Right? Okay. So, I mean, like, we we get this idea of um, people-pleasing, or in this case, police-pleasing. Like, we drive just enough over the speed limit not to get pulled over because, really, we don't care about obedience. We just want punishment avoidance. But God isn't calling for punishment avoidance here. He says... Serve your masters. I think that as employees serving Christ, we should be the best employees at wherever we work because we're not, we're not serving our boss, ultimately. We're serving Christ. Like, serve your boss as if they were Christ. If you're cooking a meal for Jesus and uh, you just warmed up some leftovers in the microwave, like, that's, that's fine, but, like, it's the God of the universe in your household. Like, so when we think of, about, like, serving our bosses, or or serving our employees as if they were Christ, which is what Paul is calling for here. Like it, it brings up our level of service to a different level. He wants so much more for us than just to be people pleasers. He didn't say serve just enough to avoid getting fired or, um, or anything like that. He wants us to be, to be the best. Um in addressing employers, uh, he says the same thing. I mean, I, I like reading leadership books. I know leadership and management aren't exactly the same thing. I've read a couple of ma- management books, I've read a lot of leadership books, but I have never read the leadership book that says, um, you know, pay your employees um, more than what market value is. They all say, you know, hey, if someone will accept uh, minimum wage, don't pay them a cent more. But like that isn't like what we're called to, like our bottom line in as Christians, isn't just like a flourishing business. It's we obey, we submit to others, we submit even at the expense of our own desires, like we submit those things to point other people to what Christ is like. That is the reason that we have authority on earth, is to be an example of what provision and care we have available um, from God. Employees aren't the means for us to reach our business's bottom line, but serving our employees is a means for us to reach our spiritual bottom line, faithfulness to God. Again, I'm afraid that we're, as Christians, we're known as as cheap. Um, Boaz, when he saw Ruth in the field, he he, he provided lavishly for her, so much more than she needed, so much more than she and Naomi needed because he cared for her. He, He was wielding his authority, laying his own preferences aside, submitting to the people he was serving by providing that is what we're called to as people who are put in authority other people you guys the love of god is so vast I was talking i messed up the verse but talking about earlier how it's like you know so like that we'd be able to comprehend like the width and the length and the depth and the height like it, it is so vast that god gives us so many pictures Um, All through creation, there uh, in Romans 1, he talks about how creation serves to point us to God. And so we look at things like um, Yosemite Valley or uh, the Grand Canyon, and without those things, we would have no idea what it means to look at something and just... Like, God gives us things so that we can know what awe feels like. He gives us those things so that we could look past the Grand Canyon and see a God who's way bigger, and we could look at him with awe, and he gave us science. He, he made the, the huge universe, so it's like the same God who made the cosmos. It's the same God who made these pesky little humans, and to understand his transcendence yet his imminence. like these pictures in creation are given to us for a large part to point us to what God is like. And this morning, when we're looking at these relationships, like God gives us relationships. He doesn't abolish authority. It's his idea. He stands by it. He, he gave authority to Adam over creation. He gives authority to parents over their children. And, and, and it's all about care. When we hear authority, we should think care. Like we're demonstrating our care for others. And he gives children to parents so that we could understand just how much God loves us, except even more. And he gives children parents so that when they read a verse like John three sixteen, like God went on the greatest rescue mission ever for his people, they're like, yeah, my dad would do that for me. I know that. Like my, my dad would go on a rescue mission for me because like, he loves me. And that's an image of like what God is like to us. So he gives us these earthly relationships. And he even gives us relationships where we're under authority um, and, and even sometimes over authority, so that we can understand like provision and care, and look past those things as sign points, signposts of grace, to look at God. The call for us is to submit to others as our way of life. It's commanded by the author of life, and it points others to the abundant life. We should live in such a way that other people are turning their heads and saying, "Why is that guy doing that?" Like our cup is so full that we can do that. Uh, at the end of, or in the middle of the School of Rock, um, Dewey Finn, so he's you know, now Mr. Schneebly uh, in, in the classroom, and what he ends up doing is he uses these kids that are in his substitute class to build the band that he's going to compete in the Battle of Bands against. And because he got burned in his last band, he makes them say a Pledge of Allegiance. He makes them raise their hand, and he says, I pledge allegiance to the band of Mr. Schneebly and will not fight him for creative control and will defer to him on all issues related to the musical direction of the band As those called into a new allegiance, an allegiance to Christ, one where Christ is our ultimate authority, we get to defer to him in all matters of spiritual direction of our lives. God has this for our good. Authority is for our good. And like God, we don't selfishly use our authority um, to to build us up or to make us look really awesome because that's not what God does. And we also don't, out of fear of misusing authority, set it aside and not use it because that's also not what God does. He uses the full weight of his authority to serve us, to love us, to pursue us. And that's our call too. So would you guys join me in prayer? Lord, I thank you. Um, I thank you that um, though we we don't always understand you, um, you give us images on earth of what tastes, glimpses of what you're like. And uh, Lord, I pray that when we see what you call good, um, that it would just whet our appetites for the new heaven and new earth, when we get to spend an eternity with you. God, I pray for all the parents and for the kids, uh, for us um, as employees and employers. You didn't abolish employment. Um, we, God, you, you kept it here so we could learn a little bit more about what you're like. I pray that we would go throughout all of life, um, not just looking at the things, but looking through the things, saying, what, what does this teach me about God? Uh, I thank you for Paul's example of that this morning, and I pray that you would continue to make us more in the image of God. Thank you for all these things in the name of your son. Amen.